0: Good morning, morning. let's open our Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 28, it's on page 234 in your pew Bible, 1st Samuel chapter 28, last week, Millions of NFL fans were anticipating the Monday night football showdown between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals, who had the most combined wins ever for a Monday night football game. The Bills needed to win this game to clinch the number one seed in the AFC, and the Bengals still had a fighting chance for it. In the opening drive, the Bengals scored a touchdown. But then the Bills came back almost with a touchdown and settled for a field goal. If you were watching the game, you could feel the intensity as both teams knew what was at stake, and they had shown up to play hard. And Then with 5.58 left in the first quarter, after what seemed to be a routine tackle, The bill's safety, DeMar Hamblin, stood up only to stagger backwards a couple of steps and collapse to the ground. Medical team rushed onto the field followed by an ambulance. Hamblin was given CPR for nearly 20 minutes, then put on a stretcher and rushed to Cincinnati Medical Center. Later, the Bills announced that he had suffered a cardiac arrest on the football field. His heartbeat, thankfully, was restored on the field before he was taken to the hospital, where he remained in ICU in critical condition for at least a couple of days. Thankfully, these last few days, he has made remarkable progress and even FaceTimed with his team on Friday. Like many of you, Ruthie and I were watching the game when this crisis occurred live before our eyes. And like many of you, we prayed as they worked on DeMar Hamley, praying for him and his family, his teammates, as the medical team fought desperately to save his life. It was amazing and sobering to see how quiet the stadium got as tens of thousands of fans just waited for what probably seemed like an eternity. It was amazing and sobering to see how players from both teams in this hard-fought game came together, put their arms around each other, wept and prayed together as they awaited the outcome of this crisis. It was amazing and sobering to see how two very competitive coaches spoke so tenderly with one another afterwards, trying to come up with a solution that would be best for both of their teams as they try to address them in the midst of this crisis. As the ESPN commentators discussed the situation, one of them described the scene, and I quote, It's chilling to watch. You can see it on social media. Every single team, every single player, every single person offering up their prayers for DeMar Hamlin right now. Players are sent to their locker room, and the game doesn't matter. The game is so secondary to everything else. No one cares about the game right now. Everybody cares about this young man, his family, and finding out how he's doing, which is all that is on anybody's mind right now. And it's just one of those moments that is chilling. There is no other way to say it. It's chilling. It's heartbreaking. End quote. I refer to that scary incident not only because it's been on most of our minds this week, but also because it serves as a very helpful analogy to the transition we see here in 1 Samuel 28 as the narrator shifts from the impending battle between the Philistines and the Israelites and what's going on with David that is a serious situation and shifts to the crisis in the life of Saul which is a situation that is far more urgent and demands our attention. So please follow along as I read this vital portion of God's Word. 1 Samuel 28, beginning in verse 1. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, "'Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army.' David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines." Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant." Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But the servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even in the reading of this passage of Scripture, we can just sense the weight of it, the desperation, the dread of Saul, and the judgment that came upon him. In our own hearts, in a sense, tremble with fear as we consider a man who has made himself the enemy of, of God. Lord, I pray that we would take to heart this word of Scripture. God, I pray that we would be focused on the right things while, while there are some parts of this passage that are intriguing and are per, perplexing and, and might uh, titillate our minds. I pray, Lord, more than anything, that your Holy Spirit would grip our hearts that we would see the main thrust of this passage and its application for our lives today, so that we would not be like Saul, but that we would turn to you, our God and Savior. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When preaching on 1 Samuel 27 last week, Pastor Mike rightly referred to David's situation in, in living among the Philistines as the pit's. And yet Saul's situation here in chapter 28 is far worse. Yes, David is in the pits, but Saul is in utter despair. He has lost all hope at this point because God has rejected him and has refused to answer him. Ralph Davis wrote, quote, Nothing is so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond, beyond the sound of God's voice and that you are totally alone. End quote. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the New Testament that whatever was written in the Scriptures long ago, including all the characters and events of the Old Testament, were written for us. They were written for our sakes, to instruct us, to, to warn us, to encourage us so that we might not lose hope. In this chapter, Saul's example stands out as a warning to you and to me. And the message is, don't be like Saul. Listen to the Lord before it's too late. Listen to the Lord before it's too late. Saul's disobedience and rebellion against the Lord put him on a path to desperation, utter dread, and eventual destruction. What a terrible way to live and then die. As you observe Saul's tragic downward spiral, resolve this day that your life, your story, Your destiny will be different than his. That's what God wants for you. And that's why this account has been recorded in his word. The narrator sets the stage at the beginning of the chapter by describing an epic battle that is about to take place between the Philistines and the Israelites. A battle that will bring about Saul's death and clear the path To the throne for David. But in the meantime, David has been living among the Philistines probably for more than a year at this point while on the run from Saul. King Achish, the ruler of the Philistines, thinks David is now on his side. And he tells David near the start of the chapter that he's counting on him, that he expects David and his men to join him in going out against the Israelites in the battle. And David responds rather ambiguously, doesn't he? Very well then, he says, you will see what your servant can do. Then Achish says, very well then, I will make you my bodyguard for life. By his equivocal answer, David avoids backing himself into a corner, while at the same time uh, maintaining Achish's expectations. He's in a sense borrowing time here. He's he's stalling, looking for a way out. So when David says that, you will see what your servant can do. David is thinking one thing, but Achish is thinking something else. Reminded me of a time I, I heard of a pastor that got a special gift on his birthday from a sweet older lady in the congregation who had heard that he really liked apple pies and she gave him this apple pie and he was really looking forward to enjoying it after uh, the Sunday dinner with his family after church. And, and so after dinner they eagerly anticipated the, the dessert and they cut into the pie and everybody took their first bite and a moment later they, they spit it out. It tasted horrible. They didn't know if something went wrong with the ingredients or what, but it was like literally inedible. So they threw the entire thing in the trash. But the pastor was dreading, what am I going to say to this lady when I see her at church next Sunday? Surely she's going to ask me about the pie. And sure enough, she did. She said, so how did you like the pie? And in the spur of the moment, he just thought and he said, I don't want to lie, but I gotta say something, so he got an idea, and he said, "Well, I'll tell you this: pies like that don't last long around our house." (laughs) Pastors, if I say that, don't. The pastor's ambiguous answer got him out of a pickle, and uh, so did David's answer here, at least temporarily. Now, the narrator's going to resume what's going on with David in chapter 29. But at this point, he wants us to focus on Saul because while David is in the pit, Saul is in despair. David is in a pickle, but Saul is in a far more desperate situation. Let's look at that, Saul's desperation. This first point's going to cover the the majority of the message because it takes up at least half the chapter. In verse 3, the narrator repeats what he had stated at the outset of chapter 25, that Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his home at Ramah. Why does he mention it again at this point? He mentions it because Samuel's death was a low point for Israel, and the Philistines sought to take advantage of it. They mustered their troops and encamped at Shunem, So Saul was forced to gather all Israel at Geboah, a mountain about 10 miles southeast of Shunem. There's a map here we'll show you. I believe that the Philistines' goal at this point was to gain control over the valley of Jezreel. We look in verse 5, as you leave the map there, you see, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So Samuel's death emboldened the Philistines, but it had the opposite effect on Saul. He was so frantic that his heart was beating like crazy. He suffered violent heart palpitations. Last week we were watching our three grandchildren while our daughter and her husband were off in Hawaii uh, enjoying a a week's vacation with a a brother that uh, Stephen has living out that way. And uh, one thing about my oldest grandchild, Ivy, who's seven, is she loves scary stories and movie clips. And uh, sometimes Grandpa has pushed the line a little bit and uh, have gotten a a mild rebuke from his daughter and her husband, but uh, they were gone, so it was kind of like open season. (laughs) on ivy so she was sitting in my lap and she was begging me to tell her a story or show her something scary so so i found what i thought was a pretty suspenseful kind of scary uh movie clip on my phone but you know okay for her that she could probably handle it and uh she did thoroughly enjoy it her her eyes were as wide as saucers while she was seeing it and as soon as i was done she looked at me excited she said grandpa feel my heart and I reached over and her heart was just beating like out of her chest, like a, going incredibly fast. And, and I quickly assured her, you know, this was just all pretend. Those are just actors and actresses and it's all fake. And the way it looked, you know, it didn't really happen that way. It's just all pretend. So this rush of adrenaline she experienced quickly subsided and she calmed down. But... It showed us one of the physiological effects of fear that it can literally cause a surge of adrenaline to make your heart beat like crazy, at times feeling like it's pounding out of your chest. And and for those uh, few folks, uh, I'm sure some among you who have ever suffered a, a panic attack, it is a horrific feeling. And the Bible says here that Saul's heart trembled greatly. He was suffering violent heart palpitations as he saw the threat of the Philistines before him. He was literally shaking in his boots. And what Saul was facing was not a pretend situation. It wasn't a movie clip. It wasn't just a scary story of fiction. This was a real life crisis, a matter of life and death, and he was utterly terrified. Verse 6 says, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Mark it down, brothers and sisters, that by his sin, by his perpetual disobedience, by his rebellion, Saul robbed himself of all godly courage and counsel. Having disobeyed the Lord, Did Saul now think that God was going to speak to him through a dream? Having murdered all the priests at Nob, including the high priest Ahimelech, did Saul now think that God was going to give him direction through the Urim, the priestly device that was used to to know God's guidance in a given situation? Having repeatedly rejected God's word, did did Saul now expect to give him some prophetic revelation? Scripture says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Because Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord now refused to answer Saul. And as Samuel would soon say those scary words, God is now your enemy. David was in the pits, but Saul was in utter despair. Saul had hit rock bottom. And here's the thing. Sometimes those who hit rock bottom find a way to dig themselves even deeper. And that's what Saul does here. When he doesn't get an answer from God, he does what most of us would consider the unthinkable. He goes to a medium in order to channel with the dead to get some answers. A medium, as you probably know, is an intermediary between the spirit world and ours. Sometimes a medium is called a channeler because that person allegedly channels communication with the dead to the living by holding seances or some other similar means of communication. Saul compounded his sin by consulting a medium in a desperate attempt to communicate with Samuel who had already died. In fact, if you look back again at verse 3, after reminding us that Samuel had died and Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his home city, we're told in the second part of the verse, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now clearly that point of information is given to us at the beginning of the chapter for what's going to come to us later in the chapter, the section we're looking at right now. But I want to point out that this was a good thing that Saul did when he did it. Because God had made it very clear through his prophet Moses that he prohibited all witchcraft, all sorcery, any attempts to communicate with the dead whatsoever. In fact, God had not only forbid his people to seek out mediums, but he said that anyone who did such a thing, that God would set himself against that person. Furthermore, God said that anyone who practiced sorcery or witchcraft or held seances or attempted a channel with the dead, that that person was to be put to death. They were to be executed under the law of Moses as a gross violation of the expressed law of God. Because those practices are an abomination to God. Now there's a lot of You know, pranksters, a lot of con people out there, a lot of tricksters. But I want us to understand from Scripture, and you can do the research yourself, that that God didn't prohibit this stuff because it doesn't work. God prohibits this stuff because it's wicked. And while there's a lot of foolery and trickery that goes on by con people who, who supposedly conjure up dead people, We're not exactly sure all that goes on in the spiritual realm, but this we do know. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And these beings are not to be trifled with. And God gave these warnings to his people for their good. And anyone that disregarded God was subject to the judgment of God. We can't tell by the text exactly when Saul had gotten rid of the mediums and necromancers out of the land. Perhaps it was very early in his reign uh, when Samuel still had a prominent influence upon him. Or maybe it was later in his reign when Saul himself became tormented by an evil spirit. Maybe he thought that he was bewitched and, and, and wanted to clear out anyone who dabbled in the occult, wanted to expel them out of the land of Israel. Matthew Henry wrote, quote, Many seem zealous against sin when they themselves are any way hurt by it, who otherwise have no concern for the glory of God, nor any dislike of sin as sin. However, it was commendable for Saul thus to use his power for the terror and restraining of these evildoers. But note, many seem enemies to sin in others while they indulge in it themselves. Saul will drive the devil out of his kingdom and yet harbor him in his heart by envy and malice. End quote. It's one thing to root evil or evildoers out of the land of Israel, It's another thing to root evil out of your own heart. And that's where the devil had sway over Saul. And yet who would have thought that King Saul, who stood head and shoulders above the people, the first anointed king would stoop so low as to consult a medium and to go to such lengths to do it. Look again at the map that we showed earlier. You see there that Saul and his troops were gathered at Gilboa while the Philistines were a little bit north at Shunem. And Endor is a few miles northeast of Shunem. So so Saul and the two men who accompanied him would have had to skirt the camp of the Philistines, all their armies, in order to reach the medium, the witch, at Endor. It's been said that desperate times call for desperate measures. And desperate people will sometimes go to great lengths to turn to any resource that they think will give them a sense of relief, a measure of hope, a way of escape. Some people turn to the horoscope. (laughs) If I would have had time, I would have read to you another poem my dad wrote about the horoscope, a biblical corrective to anyone that reads that. Maybe I'll throw that out to you sometime this week. Other people might go to palm readers or look in, you know, a crystal ball and do nonsense like that. Some have maybe dabbled with Ouija boards or participated, even maybe, you know, semi-jokingly in a seance. Foolish, wicked stuff, all of it. And yet those who would never think to do that would, would look to find a way of escape or relief elsewhere in pornography, in alcohol. Drug dependency. Looking for a way of escape, a means to cope. Uh, Looking to find a measure of relief in the midst of their crisis. And that's why I chose Psalm 102 for the scripture reading this morning. I want to thank Brother Trevor for reading God's word to us today. If you were paying attention as that psalm was read, you would see that the psalmist was clearly afflicted. He is in a prolonged season of crisis. God seems to be against him. God seems to be absent. And yet in his moment of desperation, what does he do? He continues to cry out to God because he knows he has nowhere else to go. He's like Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In the season of desperation, the psalmist continues to cry out to God in his pain, knowing that, and he says this in verse 17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Even though in the moment of his praying, God seems absent. He doesn't seem to be answering, but he's confident in the character of God that he will not despise the destitute. God will not disregard his prayer. He keeps on going to God as if to say, God, I have nowhere else to go but you. You are my only hope. You are my only guide. You are my only answer. You are my only hope. You are my only relief in life. And that's the difference between David and Saul. David was a man after God's own heart. David was desperate for God, not mere guidance from God. So many folks today don't see God as the end. They see God as the means to what they're really looking for. And in this situation, Saul, who had so often disregarded the word of God, now wants God to answer him, not because he's pursuing God, but he's pursuing guidance. And he'll get it from any way he can. And if God won't answer me, then I will go to someone who will channel the dead, if that's what it takes. Saul wasn't seeking the Lord. Like a lot of people today, he was simply seeking a solution to his problem. And we know this because of the divine commentary on first, in First Chronicles 10, which says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. How does this coincide with what we read here in chapter 28? That It says, verse 6, that Saul inquired of the Lord. The chronicler says Saul did not inquire of the Lord. It's a different Hebrew word, and it's not all that hard to figure out even in English. Would you agree that there's a way to inquire of the Lord without really inquiring of the Lord? That was Saul. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He was using the Lord as a means to get out of his predicament. I realized that Saul's encounter with the medium at Endor And the appearance of Samuel raises a lot of questions. Like, did the medium utilize dark magic, the power of Satan to actually conjure up the spirit of Samuel? Was it really the spirit of Samuel or was it a demon impersonating him? Or was this whole thing a farce, a trick played on Saul? Well, throughout church history there have been many views on this. The most prevalent view seems to be that this was a genuine appearance by the spirit of Samuel, that God overrode whatever the medium was up to in order to deliver a message to Saul. I'm inclined to agree with that. For one reason, the narrator refers to the spirit as Samuel doesn't say he just looked like Samuel or pretended to be Samuel. It says he refers to him as Samuel. Second, the medium cried out with a loud voice. It's like uh, when she saw the real Samuel, she wasn't expecting to see him. My guess is that she was probably some sort of a charlatan, some sort of a con woman that had tricked many people into thinking that she could channel with the dead. But this time something actually happened, and it freaked her out. And when it happened, she also recognized that the man who stood before her was Saul. I think God overrode this situation to deliver a message to Saul and to prove his power to this woman and Saul. Furthermore, we read that Samuel appeared in his prophetic robe, I think this is significant in light of the message that is reiterated by Samuel on this occasion that was first stated to Saul back in chapter 15. Remember when Samuel turned away uh, to go away from Saul and Saul seized his robe? What happened? It tore and Samuel used that as a symbol saying, God has torn away the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor, David, who is better than you. Didn't mention David on that occasion, but said has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, and this is kind of the clincher for me, Samuel's pronouncement included an additional uh, prophecy that was not given in the original. And this is that Saul would die the very next day. Only God would know the future and predict it through his prophets in such a way, so accurately, so definitively. As one Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, put it, Samuel's message was God's final word to a king who insisted on going his own way. Samuel's message was God's final word to a king who insisted on going his own way. And this is the crux of the issue that demands our attention. I don't know what you think about this whole incident or how it plays in to the spirit of Samuel or mediums or necromancers or channeling with the dead or whatever. And on this, Scripture is clear that God prohibits that. But Scripture doesn't give us all the details exactly as to how those things work, when they work, all that sort of thing. So here's the thing, I would strongly caution you to not, I would say, don't give yourself to speculation. Let's focus on application. Let's not focus on the things that we don't know and cannot say for sure from scripture. Let's focus on the black and white truth that God has made known to us so that we can apply it to our lives. And here's the point of application as we look at Saul's situation. When you find yourself in any situation, in even desperate situations, where do you turn? Where do you turn? If God seems absent and doesn't answer you, even for a season, do you give up and go elsewhere for guidance? Or do you continually, like the psalmist, turn to God, knowing that you have nowhere else to go? God is, and always, is the answer. Well, Saul went from desperation to dread. Look at verses 16 to 19. Samuel essentially rebukes Saul, saying, If the Lord didn't answer you, and he goes on in verse 16, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. In the first part of this pronouncement, you know, the second part includes additional information that was not given back in chapter 15. But essentially, the message of the deceased Samuel is the same as the living Samuel. Because God's word had not changed. But in this case, Samuel does add the pronouncement that Saul and his sons would be with him the next day. Now this may simply mean that Saul and his sons will die. Or it could mean that their spirits will join Samuel in the place of the dead, perhaps even among those whose sins are forgiven. Again, scripture is not precise on this point. But whatever the case, Samuel makes no more speeches regarding Saul's disregard for God's word. Do you notice in his pronouncement, Samuel simply speaks of today and tomorrow. Saul, you're done. This is the end of the line for you. As promised, God's judgment has come. And nothing you can do at this point is going to change that. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. I wonder if in that moment, and I say this respectfully, if Saul had his own version of a Damar Hamlin experience. Upon hearing these words, he staggers a step or two backward and then just falls flat on the ground. realizing that the day of judgment had come. Saul is famished, exhausted, and finished. He'll die tomorrow, but he's as good as dead. John Flavel applies the dreadful state of Saul to that of the impenitent sinner, saying, And what will you do when you are in Saul's case? Alas, where will you turn? What will you do when you stand before the bar and see that God who is your enemy upon the throne? No wonder scripture warns us in Amos 4.12, prepare to meet thy God. Judgment day is coming. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It cannot be averted. All you can do is get ready for it. Prepare to meet your God. Listen to the Lord before it's too late. When judgment day comes, there will be no more time to prepare. At age 24, and one of the world's top athletes, DeMar Hamlin had no clue that he would suffer a cardiac arrest during a routine play in the middle of a football game. He could have easily died. He almost did. Scripture says that we don't know what a day may bring forth. Friends, we have no guarantee that we'll be alive by lunchtime, by kickoff time, let alone tomorrow. And that's why the Lord says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Saul ran out of time. His desperation led to dread, and he walked away into darkness. And that's the last point we see in verses 21 to 25. Verse 21 says, And the woman came to Saul, and she saw that he was terrified. Apparently she wasn't present when Samuel pronounced judgment on Saul. My guess is is that upon seeing that it was really Samuel and shrieking out and recognizing it was Saul and crying out with a loud voice, she then fled out of the room. And then you have Samuel pronouncing this judgment on Saul. And Saul uh, falls prostrate on the ground. And it's probably at this point she comes to Saul. She sees him now after this incident. She sees that he is terrified and she urges him to eat. It was a kind thing for her to do, but as Matthew Henry said, "What a deplorable condition had Saul brought to upon himself when he would have needed so wretched a comforter?" The woman urged him to eat, but Saul didn't want to. Verse twenty-three says he refused and said, "I will not eat." But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he listened to their words. So he arose and sat on the bed. The woman proceeds to kill a fattened calf. She bakes some unleavened bread. And she fixes Saul a feast fit for a king. Sort of like the last meal served to a man on the eve of his execution. Verse 25. And she put it before saul and his servants and they ate then they arose and went away that night doesn't this remind you of another last supper that took place when after receiving the morsel judas immediately went out and it was night the Apostle John, in describing this scene of which he was an eyewitness, is not merely letting us know what time it was. He's depicting Judas's dreadful state. It's like he was entering into outer darkness itself. But friends, there was someone else who the next day entered darkness. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice Elohim, Elohim, Lama which is to say, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There's a mistake that we can make as we look at a text like this, if we're not careful. And that is to think that we're better than Saul. That we're better than Judas. That we're not so disobedient and rebellious as that. But we would be dead wrong. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, just like Saul did. And the Lord has laid on him, his one and only son, the iniquity of us all. Friends, the glory of the gospel is that God's one and only son endured the darkness and agony of God's absence for us. In the Battle of Golgotha, Jesus suffered forsakenness so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus endured God forsakenness so that you and I would not be forsaken, but could be forgiven. So here are the closing questions. Do you love the one Who endured this darkness for you? Do you look to Christ alone? As your wonderful counselor? As your only hope in life and death? Do you cling to Him as your crucified and risen Savior? Do you seek the Lord in His presence continually? Let's pray. Lord, this is an incredibly sobering, startling text that should cause us to be still and know that you are God. And to thank you that because of your mercies, we are not consumed. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, I have no doubt that there are some within the range of my voice who have yet to repent of their sins and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. They want to live life their way instead of your way and they have yet to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon them through the example of Saul not to be like him, to listen to the Lord before it's too late. Lord, you assure us in your word that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that that confession will be made by every person here looking to Jesus on that day not as their judge, but as their merciful Savior, as their beloved Lord, because they listened to You before it was too late. Late. Help us, Lord, each of us, to examine our hearts, to repent of any known sin, to look to Christ alone as the source of our eternal salvation, and resolve this day that we will not disregard the word of the Lord but we will pay more earnestly attention to it. In Jesus' name, amen.